1: annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast. Movie review, fail-safe. I'm your host Jeff Hogue.
0: Hello Cold War fans. Today we're going to be looking at the 1964 film Fail Safe by director Sidney Lumet. Film buffs may know his work from Before the Devil Knows You're Dead and Serpico. As with any of our film review episodes, it's completely filled with spoilers. So, If you'd like to see the film before hearing us uh, take our opinions on it, please stop the recording, go to Amazon, your local DVD store, wherever you happen to get uh, your films, check it out, and then come back and join us for the rest of our conversation.
1: So today we're going to be reviewing the the film Failsafe, which came out in 1964, uh, just like uh, our last movie review, uh, Dr. Strangelove, or How We Learned to Love the Bomb. So we're going to be making a lot of comparisons uh, between the two movies, and I'm going to start with just some few facts uh, about the movie just to get us started. Um, the movie, uh, one of the interesting facts is it has no score, so there's no music in it. It's very... Um, I guess just plain. It's just a straight movie. It's shot very seriously, uh, as you would expect, a movie about nuclear war. Uh, and just very – it's shot very similar to Strangelove, but obviously, like we said last time, Strangelove is a comedy. This is not a comedy. Um, and then also the this movie was, just like Strangelove, very much influenced by the Cuban Missile Crisis, which had just happened in 1962. And obviously had influenced the era in which it had come out because um, we had become really close to nuclear war. And everyone was very aware of how close that we had become. So it was on a lot of people's front minds. Another interesting fact about the movie is uh, Walter Matthau, who we normally see he plays a lot of comedic roles. Uh, he plays a very serious role in this movie as a government analyst, uh, as an academic uh, so it's kind of interesting to see him play that kind of role. And actually, I think this is before his movie career really got started. Um, so it's interesting that even though he plays a lot of comedic roles later on, this was his first or one of his first real roles in Hollywood. Um, another interesting you know, aspect of the movie uh, in comparison to Strange Love is that they use different bombers or they focus on different planes. Um, here they focus on B-58 Hustlers. Um, or they call them vindicators I'm not sure why they s- say that but that's what they call them in the movie uh versus the B52 in strange love uh which is an interesting juxtaposition we I've, we've had both in sac during the 1950s and 60s so it's kind of interesting that they they chose to focus on one each um another interesting thing our point about the movie is that the the Russians throughout the movie are only uh, heard. They're not seen. We don't see them. There's not a Russian character like there is in Strange Love. So it's actually kind of fam- familiar um, to our other movie that we reviewed a little while back, uh, When the Cranes Fly, in that you don't really see the enemy. So that I thought that was an interesting take. The U.S. military also refused to uh, help with this production, um, although from what I understand, they didn't assist with Strange Love either. And uh, they actually – they went a step further with with, uh, Failsafe, though. They actually pressured uh, the rental houses to not allow them to use stock footage. Um, So they were trying to stop them from getting stock footage of, like, bombers taking off or military bases, other such, so that they would have problems basically creating the film. Um, Another thing about – Just the atmosphere at the time, which I forgot to mention last episode, I didn't think about it, but was also came out in 1964, which was very controversial at the time, was the famous 1964 Johnson for President ad. And this ad was very famous. Um, Most political scientists or people who study politics know about it because it featured a little girl, and she's taking petals off of a flower and counting backwards. And then it turns into uh, a guy talking almost like a countdown clock, and then you see a nuclear explosion. Um, and that year, there was a big heated race between uh, Goldwater and Johnson, and of course, Johnson was n- not ambiguously making the point that, as other Democrats had made, that Goldwater was was it was crazy and that he could cause a nuclear war. So they were very much you know blowing up these concerns or these thoughts around nuclear war during the election. So I just wanted to point that out as well. Um, Another interesting fact about the movie is that the film writer, uh, Walter Bernstein, uh, was blacklisted from Hollywood for being a communist, uh, although he wasn't, or he maintains that he wasn't, from 1954 to 1958 uh, during the McCarthy era. So that was kind of interesting. And uh, they also did it in 2000, they did a TV remake uh, starring George Clooney uh, although the T V version was shortened slightly. And also another one of the, uh, the stars in the movie, uh the translator is actually J.R. Uh Ewing of uh Texas. He's in the, uh, he's in that, that drama in the nineteen seventies.
0: Not only that, we see Dumb Deloise uh famous sidekick to Burt Reynolds in a lot of the seventies movies.
1: Uh critics actually love this movie. Uh, but its box office performance was very poor. Uh, part of the reason is because it came out exact, right after *A uh, Strange Love* in the same year. So a lot of people thought that the movie was copying off *Strange Love*, or they just they didn't buy tickets to go because they just assumed it, was, it would be very similar. And the the movies do have some similarities, uh, but they also have some big differences as well. Uh, so I think maybe people are also just worn out uh, of the nuclear topic and they just didn't want to watch it as well. So, And also I think this topic, like we talked about last time, is just much more digestible or, or easier to to think about when it's done in the comedic for- format versus straight serious, which this movie is. Failsafe and Strangelove were both produced by Columbia Pictures and actually Kubrick – uh, was able to convince the author of Red Alert, the book that he had based his movie off of to sue the author uh, of the failsafe book uh, who wrote the, who which the the movie was based off and basically these two professors got into an argument around it, and they the the author of Red Alert accused the other author of plagiarism and of course eventually Kubrick uh, forced the studio with what leverage he had to make sure that his movie came out before fail safe so now we're going to just go like we've done with our other movie reviews just scene by scene through the movie and kind of get our thoughts around it and uh, talk a little bit about it so the movie opens with this guy having a nightmare about a bullfight and you know so he has this nightmare and then he wakes up and he goes in he checks on the kids and talks to his wife about the nightmare and this is seems like it's been a recurring nightmare that he's he's had and it's also, from what we're guessing, is, is his pressure from his job as he works uh, as an Air Force general. And, you know, obviously it, one of his responsibilities is thinking about nuclear war. It appears he works at the Pentagon. Um, so he's, you know, under a lot of stress and it's kind of manifesting itself in these dreams. So we flash to DC and there's a dinner party and a group of um I would say I guess like aristocrats, you know, famous people. They don't really tell us who these, these folks are, but you know, you could tell that they're well to do. And they're all talking about nuclear war and there's a debate around, you know, who would win a nuclear war and like we talked about in our last movie review, you know, in the nineteen sixties, you know, this is a big debate, you know, how can you can you can you win a nuclear war? And Walter Matthau's character is there, and you know he is a reflection of sort of the whiz kids or technocrats who came in with with uh, into office with with Kennedy, and sort of these really intellectual figures. Even somebody kind of like Kissinger, right? This he he has you know this a little bit of an accent, so it's kind of meant to play off of this these intellectuals who are all thinking about you know nuclear war and what it would potentially look like.
0: Yeah, the character and the way that he was talking, it reminded me a lot of uh, Bob McNamara from Vietnam where he talked a lot about statistics. And it was very much on if we apply this many bombs, they're going to lose this amount of people, and therefore we are going to get a strategic advantage. And uh, it's very uh, statistics and probability-based. Um, and, of course, as anybody who's in statistics, one of the beauties is is that you never have to be 100% correct. Yeah, to me, he came off as um, almost like a modern-day social media marketer. The extremely disturbing aspect being that he's not talking about uh, selling some sort of product and the breakdowns that you would get on each stage of the funnel. He's talking about human lives.
1: Yeah, he definitely reflects those types of characters. Another person I thought about was uh, Walter Rostow who was uh, one of Johnson's uh, aides at the time, Um, or I shouldn't say aide. I should say more of like an intellectual leader in the the Johnson White House. Um, We also see Walter Matthau kind of makes a joke about who would win in a post-apocalyptic world, which I thought was kind of funny Um, and interesting in that he was saying that it was going to be prisoners and accountants. (laughs) Uh, insurance accountants, I think it was, uh, because you know they would both be in somewhat uh, safe positions, and like who would win? You know, either the accountants who had were were more intelligent, or the prisoners who were more violent. Um, so, and everyone kind of liked that kind of, I guess, game, if you will, about thinking out what nuclear war, what all the different potentials. Later, we see a lady who is also in the scene. Uh, she tries and sed- she tries to seduce the doctor. Um, you know, she just basically gets into his car, which is kind of weird. And she's like, take me home cause I'm tired or whatever. And then, you know, they, they get into his car and he starts driving her. And then at one point, you know, they're, they're kind of talking about nuclear war still. And, you know, I guess she's attracted to him and, uh, she tries to get fresh with him. She tries to like make out with him. And then he slaps her and tells her like, you're not my kind. And I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition because normally I would imagine movies from this time period would be the guy that would kind of get fresh and get slapped. But it was a weird reversal here where she tries to come on to him and then he just slaps her in the face. Um, So I thought that was kind of odd to say the least. So then we flash to the next scene, and we go to this uh, SAC base. Uh, so the, you know, there's this Air Force colonel who gets a strange call, and he runs out, and uh, he I guess he goes to this old apartment building. And then, uh, meanwhile, this general wants to speak with him, and then he basically has to go and track him down. And when he tracks him down to this location, I'm not 100 percent sure, but it looks like his he's those are his parents. He's with. Um, they appear to be two older people who potentially biologically could be his parents, and they also appear to be alcoholics in kind of like a flop house. And it's a very, like, awkward scene, uh, and I could tell, like, the general wants – they get into the car because the general's like, are you all right? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I'm on my way. Let me just get my jacket. And they, they go out to the car, and I could tell the general wants to talk to him about it but he doesn't because he's like he's not sure how to start that conversation like hey man like are those your parents or whatever but he doesn't and he just decides to go with telling him the reason why he hunted him down he's like you know these congressmen are in town and we need to show them around so we basically need to babysit these guys and tell them about how great our base is, so that we can ensure funding uh which makes sense because you know at this time you know this uh, we're, we're spending billions of dollars On defense, and you know, this is the birth of the military-industrial complex. So, the military and the air force uh, are are trying to justify why they're spending this much money. Um, And we we've kind of seen this already in our regular series, where we have these arguments between the navy and the air force about procurement projects and ships and planes and that, and and how we're thinking about war and where we want to rail allocate our resources so that very much goes to some of the cold war essence or debates of things that were going on
0: is this something where the congress person would request to to see the base or would it be something where the air force would invite them down they could demonstrate you know how competent they were and how well they spent the money and oh by the way we also need military weapon x if you could get the funding for us i think
1: it was definitely both uh there were times when you know and to this day the military you know invites in uh politicians uh because they want to get funding from politicians right they they and then also they want to show politicians that they're spending the money wisely or you know what they're getting for it politicians as well they want to make sure that you know that that the investments that they're making the the you know the bills that they're voting for make sense um also you know if if the bases in their home districts they want to make sure that they go there and and people know who they are um because you know those military bases bring jobs to their districts and you know those jobs that, that those people have those people vote so you know it it gets into this incestuous thing we talked about before about politics and defense and and whose interest um so yeah definitely both would would have occurred so then the next scene we uh flash to this alaska Air Force Base, and there's some pilots, and they're talking about flying missions in World War II, and they're playing pool. And I think it's important here to remember that you know World War II was only twenty-something years before this, so you know we still have the Greatest Generation around, and these guys are still relatively young. Um, you know they're they're in their thirties and forties at this point, um, but they're still around. And I think for us, that's a little bit difficult because I mean, at least for me personally, they they remind me of my grandparents. Um, so it's a little bit of a different scene, and they're talking about how the younger generation, in this case, the Silent Generation, um, are you know they're just not the same as as the guys were in World War II. And they talk about how things are just much more complex, and they just they just don't have the personal connections with the crews that they used to have. And now that the, the 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 planes are flying themselves, and around this time they had the introduction of what they call fly by wire. So there were very early um, uh, systems that were coming out to help the pilots fly the, the aircraft.
0: Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they had this kind of age old criticism that the young kids are too uh, too reliant on new technology, and they didn't have the personal touch and the understanding. Interesting, it may be something foreshadowing later in the movie.
1: So, in the next scene, we flash back to these, the Air Force base or where the, the SAC headquarters and uh, the general and the, and the colonel are showing the congressman uh, their newest computer and spy satellite. They show a part where you can see Soviet submarines, and I think this is highly un- unlikely and wishful thinking. Like, even today, given the nature of water, the satellites wouldn't be able to see Soviet submarines. Um, so I think that was kind of like wishful thinking. That was a very Hollywood moment that they would be able to see the submarines, but that was, I thought, funny. Then there's some, there's, there's some concerns around, there's some comments around the machines are growing too strong and no one really has the authority, uh, in this new system and no one can, no one can really be held responsible. And it sort of reflects upon one of the themes that was in the strange love and that, the machines are becoming more and more powerful, and they're taking more and more of the decisions out of the hands of people and they're just being made by m- machines and We are slowly but surely losing control of the situation as the machines are making are controlling us more than we are controlling them
0: you know today we talk about artificial intelligence and the way that that's taking over. What were some of the concerns about technology that they had at the time that were surfacing
1: i think you know the the biggest one for this is um nuclear wars that the biggest concern about technology getting out of our control but also just in general i think they're starting this is the embryonics of that argument of artificial intelligence we don't have artificial intelligence definitely at this point but we are building bigger and bigger computers and you know they kind of allude to this uh, you know and how how do we manage these computers, or are these computers, these machines managing us? And, you know, it's kind of an interesting, I guess, thread or a way that we're getting towards that argument or that that fear about artificial intelligence that we have today. You know, many of the foundations of the big computer systems that we have today, computer chips, you know, the internet, those are all laid in the Cold War. And, you know, the, the Cold War is really the genesis of our modern computers And the internet that we have today and computer chips. So, you know, it was really, I guess, fundamental to how we were thinking about fighting these potential future wars and in building the future that we live in today.
0: Yeah, I thought it was pretty funny that one of the season pilots he said, you know, these new kids these days, it's like they're built with transistors
1: inside. Yeah, that was that's actually a good point that that I I forgot about that line, but you're exactly right. Yeah. I'm sure they would today say that they're they're, you know, they're they're always looking at their iPhone or something like that, but here the guy is talking about they have transistors inside, which is kind of funny. I, I we mentioned this before in the show, but we talked about how transistors were a huge jump from vacuum tubes. And helping computers to be able to process information. So it's it's, it's ironic that he, he mentions that. So then uh, there's a UFO appears um, over the Hudson Bay. So they basically uh, they send the bombers out to the failsafe. The idea being that we don't know if this is an attack or not. And if you remember from last time, we talked about with Strangelove, the fail-safe zones are in, in reference to Operation Chromedome or these areas that were set up as kind of holding patterns before the would give the bombers the orders to go into the Soviet Union to drop their bombs, right? Um, so the bombers, in this case, start heading towards their fail-safe zones. So then we flash back to D.C. and we're in the war room. And uh, Walter Matthew is there giving a presentation about a, what a limited war with nuclear weapons would look like. And basically, um, you know, can you have a limited war with nuclear weapons without it going into a full-scale nuclear war? And they start having a debate around this. And the generals make you know some good points about you know it you know who's making policy. So meanwhile, the uh, UFO disappears from the radar screens and they go to the next stage of readiness. And the bombers reach their failsafe zones and uh, the the GO conditions, they set the GO conditions to green. And it turns out that there's just a plane off course, which is a commercial flight. Uh, but then there's a computer malfunction and they get a GO code and, the, and their targets to hit Moscow. So something went wrong. They were supposed to... Turn the bombers around, but they don't turn around. So one of the squadrons that was supposed to go back to some kind of malfunction happens and they just they start off on their targets to hit the Soviet Union. Yeah, I
0: thought the conversation between the professors and and generals was really interesting in that you see the professors are the ones who were aggressive and talking about you know we should look for a potential nuclear annihilation because we would have an advantage and the generals are the ones who are backing off and saying you know we really don't want to engage and we don't want millions of people to 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 die
1: yeah i think it introduces a weird juxtaposition where you have uh the general in this case general black is More peaceful, he's trying to find a peaceful solution to the situation or not having it escalate to nuclear war. Whereas Walter Matthau's like, "Yo, man, just go for it." And you know, it is true during the Cold War. You know, it, it wasn't. I think the the common image we have or the trope that we have is that you know the generals, you know, just like our last movie, like with Walter C. Scott. Uh, who played the general in *Strange Love*? The generals are pushing for war, and you have the civilians who are, are kind of against it. Um, but that is not always how. That was not always the case in the Cold War or in other parts in other administrations. You know, sometimes you have civilians who are more hawkish than the generals, and you know it's also you know fair to point out that, especially in this generation, a lot of those generals had seen war. They had seen destruction. Uh, during World War II and during Korea. So some of them were very hesitant about committing U.S. forces to war, whereas other academics were more willing to do that. So it is true that not all academics were doves and not all generals were hawks in the parlance of the times. So then the presidents warned uh, that he, and that they cannot make contact with the bomber. And they argue about whether or not the shoot down uh, or Our own bombers before they basically head into Russia, and uh, they begin to war game out all the different possibilities that could happen. And the professor thinks that the Soviets will surrender, and that they should just you know go ahead with it and not stop the attack. Uh, and basically, they decide against this, and they're like, "No, we're going to try to definitely shoot down these bombers. We don't want to accidentally cause nuclear war." And because the Walter Matthau has this crazy theory that if we just go for it the Russians will just give up which I thought was very strange but that was his his theory so anyways they send out these fighters the fighters launch their missiles um but they miss and because of the fact that they were at the extent of their range they also end up crashing into the ocean um so they're basically you know It it's it creates a moment of tension because the president knew this beforehand. Um, Then they say, you know, if we're going to try to shoot down these planes, we got to do it now. And the pilots are probably going to go into the drink and they're going to they're going to die, right? They're not going to make it. But so they decide to basically send these guys off to their deaths. And a lot of people are are not okay with this decision. they're they're like, Jesus, what are we doing here? So it's it's kind of an intense moment in the movie already, even though we're not that far into it. So then the president decides to call Moscow to try to explain to the Soviets uh, that this is a mistake um you know but you know but the Russians are kind of questioning like what the you know is is you know why are you calling me why are you telling me this um and then they they offer to basically have a conference call to help the Soviets to destroy their bomber their bombers um but then the Russians are like no we can do it on their own and then also we can hear on the Soviet side a lot of the Soviet generals, just like uh, – they, they just don't trust what the Americans are saying, and they're, 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 they don't know if this is a trap or what. So then it, it turns out that the Soviets are jamming uh, – obviously they're jamming our communications for our bombers, and they agree to lift the communications so the president can try and convince the crews to stop their bomb run. Um, but he tries, and he, he gets through to the group commander, which we saw earlier. It was one of those World War II pilots. Um, but he can't convince the bomber group to turn back, right? They, they've they already been ordered or they, they've been trained to not, no matter what the person sounds like, it could probably be an enemy transmission to try to confuse you. So just continue on with your mission, which is their training. So they ignore the president and they just continue with their training. So then Walter Matthau urges an all-out first strike on the Soviets, and the General Blackie argues against this move as It's basically unprincipled and wrong, and basically the professor says, you know, it doesn't what you know what we feel doesn't matter. It just matters who's alive, right? At the end of the day, who's going to be left irradiated and dead, and who's going to be left alive, and that's all there is to it. So then we go to the next scene, and the Soviets fail to shoot down our bombers, and, and. They do get one, and then the Soviets agreed to basically try to work with SAC on this conference call to try to shoot down the rest. Did the
0: Russians and the Americans have a line of communication where potentially they could do something, where the two militaries could uh, communicate in such a way?
1: So in 1964, we did. Um, We had the red line that was established after the Cuban Missile Crisis, so the American president could directly communicate. With the Soviet premier, um, so this technology did existed. I, you, how quick it would have been to set up, especially between the different air force bases, I, I don't. It's kind of questionable, but it, I guess, in theory, theoretically, it was possible. So, theoretically, I guess it could have happened that way. So then we give uh, the Soviets some of our technical data to help them basically blow up our planes. and uh, the colonel advises the general that you know that the politicians can't be trusted and that we should just launch a first strike because he's like, what are we doing? Like we're giving up our own guys. They're gonna shoot down our own people. You know we, we can't make this decision you know that we can't do this. This might be all just a Soviet trick. And the colonel then kind of has like a freak out and he knocks out the general. And then, you know, he basically – he tries to launch a first strike, and uh, basically the MPs come, and they have to arrest him, and it's just like a messy incident. And so he's arrested and taken away. And then the president proposes that if basically at this point, since their bombers are going to get – our bombers are going to get through and they're going to take out Moscow, that, you know, we – if we basically nuke New York city in exchange that, you know, we could avoid an all out nuclear war. So, you know, the Soviets basically agree to this, but you know, they, they obviously still want to, we still want to try to get the bombers if we can. Um, so the Soviets launch a barrage of Sam's and they get a bunch, they get some of the B-58s, but not all of them. And then, um, there's a few that get through, Eventually, they were able to find the pilot's wife, and they try to get her on the radio to try to convince him to stop. But he still goes ahead, and he still drops the bomb. So we hear that Moscow is wiped out. Um, so then, you know, unbeknownst to us, you know, the president at one point called and talked to Blackie, and it turns out like he sent him on the secret mission. And the secret mission was he basically loaded up a B fifty eight with nuclear weapons and of course blackie as we saw in the beginning of the movie his family lives in new york city so now the general is about to drop bombs on his own family and he drops the bombs and kills his wife his kids along with everybody else in new york city and then um then he basically commits suicide afterwards and that's more or less the end of the movie it's pretty dark um it's you know it's it's not a very long movie but it is, you know, relatively straight through and uh, that's just how it ends.
0: Yeah, it's pretty depressing and a hard watch.
1: At the time, uh, like you know, going back to kind of what we talked about last week or uh, last episode, you know, nuclear war was was a real concern and you know this in this particular scenario we ended up uh, nuking New York City in exchange for Moscow, so you know it's kind of, it's kind of a depressing dark film like I, we, we talked about last time i think the big difference between this movie and strange love is that strange love i think put this conversation to me anyways into a more digestible f- format if you will it's easier to kind of talk about a lot of the the subjects and the content whereas with this movie it's kind of just dark and depressing and everyone just gets you know a bunch of people get killed and it kind of, like, ruins your afternoon, you know. So I can imagine, you know, leaving the theater after watching The Love* and, you know, still wanting to talk about it or whatever, whereas it would have left. Leaving the, the theater after Failsafe, it's like, oh, wow, what am I going to do with the rest of the day now?
0: Yeah, I can definitely uh, sympathize with you on that. It it is a It is a hard watch because we do have those kind of live concerns. Uh, The same way. Now, the intensity is not the same. We've lived with it for a while. So, um, but, uh, you know, certainly something still could go wrong and we could have a nuclear annihilation potentially, unfortunately. But I think taking it to present day and I saw some parallels between maybe the conversations that they were having in 1964 about nuclear annihilation, I think we're having today with artificial intelligence i'm thinking of movies not uh you know like terminator this idea of skynet and then um i think something somewhat similar though not as catastrophic of ex machina the artificially intelligent robot turned murderer did you see any of those parallels with uh with modern day uh, concerns that we have about artificial intelligence, yeah, I think
1: there's there we had there is definitely parallels there with the computers um, having more us losing control of the machines that we and systems that we built to to kind of regulate this contest that we're supposed to have with the Soviets, and we basically lose control. They're not. They don't have intelligence, so to speak, like, like Skynet does. Like Skynet is an entity, right? And Skynet basically takes over with the Terminators after launching a preemptive nuclear strike um, on the human race. But with this, it's more or less an accident. Like, you know how your typewriter broke or, or the machine malfunctions, and that causes a nuclear catastrophe because of misunderstandings which come out of that mechanical failure. So this, I think, is just more – back then they were more interested or concerned about how mechanical failures or miscalculations could potentially lead to miscalculations politically speaking that could lead to the destruction of the human race. Whereas now we're more concerned about the, the machines literally taking over and them either eliminating us or us becoming some kind of a slaves to them. And you know, that's been a, an ongoing theme now for a little while. Um, you know, going back to movies like even The Matrix and stuff like that about machines really and artificial intelligence really taking over. Um, whereas I think back then in the Cold War, even though the, the genesis of the many of these systems, the computers, the Internet was in that time period, their concerns were more around mechanical malfunctions.
0: Yeah, I can see these kind of live concerns that people would have. Do you feel like um, we've gotten to a place technologically, Jeff, where we're able to control at least potentially the uh, nuclear, you know, we have processes around um, potential nuclear war such that um, we wouldn't have a situation that transpired as in fail safe.
1: I would like to say yes, but I know the answer is no. Um, because our systems uh, Well, first of all, from what I understand, and this is public knowledge, this isn't anything that's classified, most of the systems that we have date from the 1970s. So the computer systems we're still using, I mean, uh, a few years back, we, the US government decided to invest trillions more, I don't remember the exact amount off the top of my head. um, But under the Obama administration, they agreed to update our our nuclear weapons or nuclear systems. And we've been in the process of updating the computers and updating everything else. So I don't know what it looks like now because that that update process has been going on for a couple of years. Um, But as of a few years ago, I know that we were mainly still using systems that dated back to the 1970s to control and maintain our nuclear nuclear weapons preparedness. Um, So, you know, like any system, it can have a malfunction – You know, the question is, will that malfunction lead to a misunderstanding and a nuclear exchange? I think we've been extremely lucky that that hasn't happened. And we do have, there are fail safe systems that prevent such things from happening. But, you know, there's been times where we've had nuclear accidents or things have gone wrong. There's been times where we've come extremely close. And it's not just us, right? We we have our systems that we have to, to maintain, but. You know, basically, China and Russia also maintains large nuc- nuclear stockpiles, and we don't know—I mean, with certainty—how well they're maintaining their nuclear arsenals, and you know what kind of failsafes and safety systems and precautions they have in place. So, you know, they could very well accidentally assume that we're doing something that we're not, and accidentally launch an attack against us, right? And I'll, we we would we wouldn't know, right? We would just be like, oh, they're launching an attack against us. We have to retaliate, right so I would like to say that this is something we don't have to fear, but it's that's not the case. I think you know I don't know what the percentage I mean I don't even know if I want to know, but I don't know what the percentage is around the likelihood of something like the going wrong and us having a nuclear exchange with someone by accident, but you know uh these these are real concerns still that we live with today.
0: To go back and and trying to put ourselves in the mindset of 1964, what did they think the end game was going to be?
1: So there wasn't a consensus as to what the end game was. Um, There were a couple different theories about how it would end up. Um, You know, there was a theory that, uh, you know, number one, there was a theory that we're going to have a nuclear war. It's only a matter of time. We're going to be these two, the United States and Soviet Union. The two biggest kids in the block. There can only be one. Like it only be one, and we're just going to go for it at one point. And that was the one fear, concern theory that we were eventually, no matter what happened, going to have a nuclear confrontation, because all of history and humanity pointed itself to that. That was the theory. Um, the second theory at the time that you know that I've read or heard about is that. Um, One of the systems would collapse, and as it started to collapse, it would, it would, you know, its death throes potentially launch nuclear weapons, uh, or you know, would remain uh, even if its its economic system collapsed, it would still retain its missiles and still remain a threat. Um, A lot of people, especially in the 1970s, it's kind of funny. um, They thought that the Soviet Union economically would overtake the United States because they just thought socialism was a better system. And there were even some people on uh, who, you know, people who advocated capitalism and democracy, who thought that socialism was a better system. But you know what, the, the, the democracy was more, uh, more of a morally just system if if it wasn't as efficient, and that we should just hold out as long as we can because it was it was better to do that than switch over to socialism. So you know, there was that idea too that socialism would just triumph. Um, there was, you know, the idea that, you know, the Soviet Union would just fall apart. George Kennan famously said this in the Long Telegram. He talks about the Soviet Union basically falling apart, right? And, you know, a lot of people thought it would be a long time in coming. Um, but that's exact is eventually what, what happened for numerous reasons, um, which are still debated. Um, that we're going to talk about way later in the show, but, you know, that there. You know, there was these different theories, and the final theory that I read that people had at this time is that somehow the Soviet Union and the United States would learn to work together, and that we would kind of have this um, bipolar world where you know basically the, the Soviets and the Americans came to this um, peak detente, if you will. Uh, you kind of see this in uh, Space Odyssey two thousand and one and Space Odyssey two thousand and ten. Uh, where where the u s and the Soviet Union are basically working together and they they 've resolved many other issues, so that was another kind of view of the what the potential future would look like so for people in nineteen sixty four it was gonna be one of those four scenarios widely speaking that people the way that most people thought saw it going
0: any final thoughts
1: I think the movie's an interesting movie. I definitely would check it out because it does go well with uh strange love. It is interesting compare and contrast. Um, if you are interested in what potentially nuclear war would have looked like during the Cold War, it's another interesting watch. It's a relatively short movie, so it's not a huge time commitment as well. And I think it, it does have a lot of drama in it, so I would definitely recommend uh, checking it out. Um, and I think you know it's worth the watch.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's a more interesting and nuanced film than I thought it was going to be. It does a really good job of getting us into the headspace of that next phase of the Cold War. We've been covering post-World War II dynamics of the Cold War. Now we're going on to the 1950s Cold War, and what are some of the things going on culturally at that time? And I think this does a really good job. So uh, thank you for recommending it. Uh, It was uh, listener Jonathan Carty, so shout out to him, and thank you for uh, recommending that film. If you have any recommendations for an upcoming movie review episode, please contact us on social media, either Facebook or Twitter or email us at uh, coldwarpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find all that information on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. And while there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show.